Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23. Since the Spirit of God has left Saul in chapter 14 and has come powerfully upon David, an evil spirit has come to torment Saul and specifically into Saul thinking that David was opposed to him, that David was going to set up an ambush against him and kill him. And since that time that, that Saul has had the Spirit leave him, the story of 1 Samuel has been a story of contrasting characters. And this story is no different. And we're going to see David in contrast to Saul and how God works in each one of them, or the lack thereof in, in Saul. So let me read our text for us, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines. And he led away their livestock and struck them with the great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of, the, of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, about six hundred, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan... Saul's son arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. Then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakalah? which is on the south of Jeshimon. Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, May you be blessed, O the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure. 
and investigate and see if his place is where his haunt is and who has seen him there. For I am told that he is very cunning. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And when they arose and went as if before Saul, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called the place the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of Engedi. As I mentioned last time, there is nothing is as hel- that is as helpless as life apart from God. There's nothing as helpless as life apart from God. And here we have the story of two men in opposite positions. One is an aggressor and the other is a victim. One has abandoned God and has been abandoned by God and the other is living in the presence of God. One is dependent on intel as the only means of making his military moves. The other uses intel but is dependent ultimately on God. One is a hunter. The other is on the run. One is pursuing his own kingdom and the other is pursuing God's kingdom. And amazingly, in the process, David is actually, even though he's on the run, even though he is the underdog, so to speak, he's actually able to protect some of God's other people in a small city while, while Saul really should be doing this. So God actually uses David even while he's on the run. So we learned several things about God being on our side tonight or not on our side. First, when God is on our side, pursuing God's kingdom is of primary importance, even when we're on the run, even when we're, we're on the defensive. When God is on our side, pursuing His kingdom is of primary importance. Now, both David and Saul have intel that is being fed to them, intelligence information that will help them in their military campaigns. Here in verse 1, David's messengers come back to him regarding this ally city of Keilah. Keilah is a city in, in Israel. It's about 11 miles southeast of Gath. So, oops. so Gath is right here. And Gibeah is, Gibeah is over here in this region. So this is where, this is where uh, uh, Keilah is right now. And that's where David finds out that they're, they're being attacked. Uh, the, the Philistines, remember, are trying to close in on Israel. They're trying to take over the territory of Israel. And one of the ways to do that is to take the strongholds, take some of the, the border cities. And, and apparently what's happening here in verse 1 is that the Philistines are bullying this smaller city of Keilah that's on the outskirts of Israel, doesn't have a lot of protection. And they come in like a bunch of bullies with all their animals and they're allowing their livestock to, to, to get a free meal off of all the work that Keilah has done. The, the people of Israel, that's Keilah. So Keilah does all the work. They, they thresh all the grain and it's there on the threshing floor. They haven't gathered it all in yet. And the Philistines come in and allow their animals to enjoy the spoil. Notice what David does not do in verse 2. He does not say, 
Well, too bad for them. You know, I have problems of my own. Or, you know, if, I, if they only knew what I was going through, then they would understand that I can't come and help them right now. That's Saul's responsibility. No, David has God on his side. And so he says, I see someone who's being mistreated. I'm going to see if I can go to his aid. Verse 2, shall I go, he says to God, shall I go and attack these Philistines? These Philistines who are attacking your people, God, should I go and protect them? You see, because God is on David's side, it is possible for David to hear from God. And we talked about this last time, that, that Saul has abandoned all of these ways in which God has spoken to, uh, has, has used to lead Saul in the past. Saul has alienated himself from all the means that God established for Saul to be protected and cared for and to lead the country or the, or the nation of Israel, I should say. Saul alienated himself from his greatest warrior, David. He alienated himself from his son and daughter, Jonathan and Michael. He alienated himself from God's voice, Samuel the prophet, and, and Ahimelech, the priesthood, by killing them all, right? All the priests. Saul has alienated himself even from his own servants by doing um, godless acts against innocent people. And so while, while Saul has put himself in militarily in a place where we would think he's very much protected and very much more powerful and, and much more advanced than, than, than David is, David here is in a place where he's feeling alone, and yet what is he doing? He's got his eyes outside of himself, considering what's going on, because he knows that God is near. And so he decides that he will ask of God, God, these people are being mistreated. Is there something that you want me to do in order to protect them? And so David inquires of the Lord, probably at this point through the prophet Gad, since Abiathar is not with him yet, we're going we're gonna to come across him in verse 6. But God says when David asks, yes, go over there and protect them. Go destroy the Philistines or go, go attack the Philistines who are attacking Keilah. Well, in verses 3 and 4, David's men need reassurance, don't they? They say, you know, how can we do this? Verse 3, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? And so David decides he needs to ask God again. They're saying, listen, we're in a dangerous situation, right? We're fleeing from Saul for our lives. And, and why would we want to go into a more dangerous situation? You know, we've already, we've already upset Saul and his men. They're after us. And so why would we want to take a baseball bat to a hornet's nest, the hornet's nest of the Philistines, and now have two swarms of hornets coming after us. You know, we're just going to deepen our trouble is what, Saul, is what David's men are thinking at this point. And so David says, fine, I'll ask him again. And God mercifully, despite the fact that he'd already answered David's question, he, he answers him again. He, he responds a second time to David's request, just like he did with Gideon in Judges chapter 6 when Gideon was unsure if he, he should um, fight for God. And in verse 5, God gives the victory. David and his men, verse 5, went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and he led away their livestock. So their livestock are there feeding on Keilah's grain. And God provides the victory. He leads the Philistines' livestock out of there and protects Keilah. Well, when Saul finds out about this in verse 6, he feels this is a good opportunity for me to do kind of a counterattack. You know, he's attacking the Philistines, but now he's trapped in a sense because he's in a place that has gates and bars that, that, that there's, 
that, that if I can get him inside those walls, he's a dead man and so are all of his men. But what God is going to do is he's going to make David both successful in the attack of the Philistines and also in the escape from Saul. And the reason he can do that is because God is on his side. And so what, uh, when, uh, let's see, verse 6. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David, to Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. So here he's, he's got means to talk to God. Remember, the ephod is, is this, this, um, this uh, part of the garment of the priest's breastplate. That, that would it would actually have a flap down like this, so it would it would come up like this and be tied at the top, and on it were the twelve uh, gems that represented the twelve tribes of Israel, and then inside of the flap were apparently these two stones. Uh, this is how they would inquire of God before the scriptures were completed, and they would reach into the the pocket of the ephod and grab one of the two stones, and they would find out if God was saying yes or no. In this case, God or David, I should say, asks two questions in verses nine through twelve. Notice he said uh, David knew what Saul was plotting, that Saul was plotted, plotting evil. So he said to Abiathar, "Bring the ephod here." Verse ten. Then David said, "O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account." Here's the two questions: Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Yes or no. Second question: Will Saul come down just as your servant has? Said So will they betray me, in a sense? I just rescued them. I protected them from the Philistines. But are they going to give me up to Saul? Or are they going to protect me? The answer is, they are going to give you up. And, and will Saul really come down after me? God answers affirmatively in both cases in verse 12. Now why would Keilah want to surrender David to Saul since they just were delivered by David? Why would they not be loyal to David? Well, do you remember what happened to the last clan of Jews that were loyal to David? The priests of Nob. In chapter 22, they were charged with aiding and abetting a fugitive assassin, so to speak, as Saul saw him. And as a result, they were utterly destroyed besides the one priest that got away. Do you think that made the, the evening news in Keilah? Do you think they, they found out about that? And so while this may not be a response we like from Keilah, we certainly can understand it, can't we? Now let me pause the story here for a minute and talk to you about God's omniscience. That is that God's knowledge is so great that He even knows about possibilities. Now we know from the rest of the story that, that Keilah doesn't surrender David. Right? He doesn't, they don't surrender David. Why? Because David gets away. He escapes before they can surrender him. But do you remember what the question was that David asked? Asked, will they surrender me? And, and God says, yes, they will surrender you. Even though they never get to that place where they have that opportunity. And that tells us something that you might not have given much thought to. And that is that God's knowledge is so deep that not only does He know every single activity that is going on in the entire universe, from the deepest reaches of space to the bottom of the ocean, He knows every creature, what they're doing, how all the molecules work together. He knows what is going on in heaven and in hell simultaneously. He knows about every single thing that exists. That's God's omniscience. But 
but also that God knows everything that has happened in the past. He knows every past activity that has happened since the beginning of creation and before that even. And He knows all of those things down to the minutest details. But not only does He know all those things that actually have happened in the past and that actually are happening right now, He also knows the possibilities of the things that could happen if we were to make an alternate choice. Now, I don't want to fry your brain tonight, so let me give you a few parameters when we think about God's knowledge of possibilities. What we need to be clear about is what the Scriptures are clear about, and that is that God has never learned anything. There's nothing that has ever surprised God. God has always been all-knowing. Second, there is only one future that will happen, and God knows that intimately. So we might like to think, well, if God knows both what has happened, what is happening, and He knows the possibilities of what could happen, then, then we have kind of an open future. We don't really know how it's all going to turn out, and so as we start to, to make choices, then it affects what's actually going to happen. And there is a sense in which that is true, that our choices actually determine what's going to happen, but... But what we need to recognize is that God has a sovereign plan. That God knows the future. That God, our God is in the heaven and He does whatever He pleases, Psalm 115, 3. That, that, that there is nothing that can thwart the plan of God. So when God sets out, I'm going to accomplish this, He knows exactly what's going to happen. And we... We may find this hard to comprehend, but but what it should do for each one of us is to humble us and cause us to stand back and be amazed at God's omniscient and all-powerful and everywhere present being that He is, that we serve. God not only knows all of the activity that has happened and is happening, but what will happen and even possibilities in addition to that. Well, in verses 13 to 14, David successfully escapes after hearing from God. David now is down to notice how many men, verse 13, actually he had 400 before in chapter 22. Now he has 600 men. So apparently he gains 200 more. And he flees to the wilderness of Ziph. I'm stuck. Having you up there? Maybe I went too far. One second. There we go. Okay. So, he's here working in Keilah here, and then the wilderness of Ziph is down here, closer to the, the Dead Sea, and he's kind of heading down this way, he, trying to get away from, from Saul. So that's where, where he is now. So when God, when God is on your side, pursuing God's kingdom is of primary importance. Number two. Lots of good points there. We're going to have to pass through, right? Oh, there's the right where I wanted it. All right. Number two, when God is not on your side, interpreting your circumstances is undoable. When God is not on your side, pursuing or interpreting your circumstances, trying to determine what's going on is undoable. Now, in contrast to David, who has, who has God both working for him and and, and in him, he's going on ahead of David, protecting him in, from the front and from the rear. That is, both from attacks that he will walk into and from attacks that will come from behind. That's the, where David is. 
that God is leading him all the way. And, and in these verses, we have Saul who has no divine way of interpreting circumstances. And so for Saul, he thinks that when he, his circumstances come, he, he evaluates them as God leading him. This is God. God is working for me. And so notice this in the text as we go through. One of the methods that he uses to track David is apparently by sending a spy along with Abiathar because in verse 6, Abiathar makes his way to David and, and apparently Saul has spies that are tracking him along the way. And we might think, well, why, why would Saul even allow Abiathar to live? He was one of these priests that supposedly betrayed him, right? But, but the reason is because he has a man that can provide intel for him. Right? It's one of the reasons that the CIA doesn't shut down ISIS's communication networks. It's because it's more valuable for, for our intelligence agency to be able to get information from those networks than it is to stop the communication because if, if we wanted to, the United States could shut that communication down at any time. And, and Saul does something very similarly here with Abiathar. He uses him as a means to get to David. That's what he ultimately wants. Notice how Saul interprets his intel in verse 7. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. For he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates. So here's what we can learn from this verse. Not everyone who thinks that God is leading is actually being led by God. How many people have you heard that said, this must be God? God is telling me to go to this place when they are clearly violating a, a, a truth or a command of Scripture. And, and we, we are thinking it's hard to argue with, with a person who's already convinced that God is leading them. But, but we're thinking, how could this be possible when, when, when this is the case in the Scriptures? What we need to do there, by the way, is, is try to challenge that person. Um, I, I found that it's not helpful to say, no, that's not God leading. I mean, maybe we need to say that sometimes. But, but instead, challenge what they're, what they're suggesting. You're saying that, that God is leading you here. How does, that, how does that go along with what God says about... Let, let me just give you kind of a bizarre il illustration. You know, I, I think that God is leading... Someone says to you, I think God is leading me to marry an unbeliever. Okay, I think God's leading it because I've seen all these circumstances. They're, they're lining up. This person loves me. Uh, I love them. Um, you know, it just seems to be a perfect match. So, so in that case, uh, what we need to say is, well, what does 1 Corinthians say about being unequally yoked? What does it say with a believer having a, a, a union with an unbeliever? Right? God, in the Old Testament, would condemn the people not for marrying interracially, but for marrying interreligiously. Hey, that, is, that is that they are marrying a person who's, who's following after a false god. That's when God was, was serious about, about those things. So, so we need to challenge people on that by asking questions. And, and here Saul's saying, this must be God. God must be here. In verse 8, Saul takes the information that he thinks is coming from God and he moves to attack his alleged greatest threat, which is David. If we think about it, Saul should be the one that's delivering Keilah. But instead, he uses this as an opportunity to let David deliver them, and then I'm going to destroy David. Now, put yourself in Saul's shoes. If you found out the location of your number one enemy, and he had, according to verse 13, only 600 men, how many of your men 
How many of your military men would you deploy to go after him? Maybe a thousand just to make sure. Two thousand? Ten thousand? Look at verse 8. How many he takes. Saul summoned all the people for war. Now turn back to chapter 15. I'll show you why this is so surprising. Chapter 15, verse 4. Notice how many people that they have. Chapter 15, verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them and to lay them 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Turn back to chapter 23. So 600 men. And, and Saul says, all right, we're just going to take the whole kitchen sink at him. He's not going to win this time. Now, it could be that the author means here all of his best men, maybe his elite forces. That could be the case. So he's maybe taking a lot fewer. But knowing Saul's paranoia, it would not be surprising that he wants to make sure that David and his men are completely wiped out and that they are made a spectacle of for the people who ever might want to betray him in the future. But notice how unsuccessful he is at the end of verse 14. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. The reason that Saul didn't have success is attributed to the fact that God was not with him. Saul looks at his circumstances, God's with me. And God's saying, no, I'm not with you. And the reason that you're not having success, the reason David is protected, that he has a wall around him, so to speak, is because God was with David and he was not with Saul. Number three. When God is on your side, there is assurance of God's presence in verses 15 through 18. Last week we finished with the following principle, that there is no life that is lonelier than a life without God. And I would suggest to you that the, the converse is also true. That there is no life that is more filled with support than a life with God. Jesus said as much when He said, when you follow after Me, you may lose some of your family but you will gain a hundredfold family both here and in life to come. And, and I think that's true of David too, that there is no life that is filled with more support than life with God even when you are alone. Here David gets another taste of God's nearness and God's love and, and specifically through a close friend whom he loves. So in verses 15 through 16, David is in hiding and God sends Jonathan to encourage him. Jonathan serves as a reminder to David that, that God has a purpose for him. And notice the source of, of Jonathan's comfort for David at the end of verse 16. It wasn't that they just had a strong friendship. It was that, notice verse 16, and Jonathan encouraged him in God. The reason that there was hope and confidence that God was near is because Jonathan pointed David to God. And this is how we ought to encourage people. We encourage people when we speak truth to them in love, which means that we remind them not necessarily about our loyalty to them. That may be helpful. Hey, don't forget that you have a lot of friends that care about you. But do you realize unbelievers do that as well? What, what you have as, you, as an advantage as a believer is that you can go to another believer and say, hey, don't fear, because you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You have Jesus. You have His Father. You have the Spirit at your side. The triune God will never abandon you. And so Jonathan here 
helps point David back to God. He, he reminds David of God's purposes in verse 17. He says, Do not be afraid because the hand of Saul my father will not find you and you will be king and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. And then Jonathan reminds David of his loyalty. In verse 18, So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Probably renewed a covenant here like they had done in chapter 18. When God is on your side, there is assurance of God's presence. Then number four, when God is not on your side, praying to God is empty. Praying to God is empty. We know from other parts of Scripture that when we harbor bitterness in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. We just saw tonight in 1 Peter 3 that, that, that there is a possibility that our prayers could be hindered based on how we treat or mistreat our spouse. Here, when God is not on your side, praying to God is empty. Ziphite, the Ziphites here, they're this place down in the wilderness near the Dead Sea. The Ziphites were of the same tribe as David. They were of the tribe of Judah. And so we would expect that they would be loyal to David. But again, they are probably thinking, bigger picture, what happens if Saul ever finds out that David was hiding in our region and he comes after us? Saul is going to wipe us out. And so they reason for themselves that we need to go and and kind of nip this in the bud. We need to go and talk to Saul first before he comes and finds out about it. And so they do that in verses 19 and 20. They say, listen, king, we know where he is. He's hiding in our wilderness. Apparently during this time, David wrote Psalm 54. Something for you to meditate on this week. Psalm 54 and possibly Psalm 63 as well. Notice Saul's empty prayer in verse 21. Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. So they tell him the information and Saul prays a prayer of blessing. God, will you bless them? We know that that's an empty prayer because God is not with Saul. God is not responding to Saul. Spirit has left Saul. And then verses 22 and 23, Saul sends them back to get better intel. Listen, that's not enough. Go back. Make sure you know where he is. Find out all of his hiding places. He, this guy is a, a terror. He's, he's um, deceiving. He's, he's cunning is, the way, I think, the word at the end of verse 22 that Saul uses. So go back and get better intel and come back and I'll come after him. Number five, when God is on your side, when God is on your side, there is protection from enemies through unlikely means. When God is on your side, there is protection from enemies through unlikely means. Now, there's lots of chasing going on here in this chapter. Lots of back and forth between uh, kind of focus on David, focus on Saul, talking to God, speaking on behalf of God, all sorts of things going on. But here we come to the climax of the, of the passage, the climax of the chapter. Saul is, being, uh, is closing in on David. David is being cornered on the side of the mountain. And uh, now we're four miles southeast of Ziph in Maon. So there's, there's Ziph there. And then Maon would be a little bit farther southeast. That's where David is. Saul's pursuing him. He knows where he's at. He knows his hiding place. He knows his stronghold. And now David has nowhere to go. He's on one side of the mountain and Saul's on the other side of the mountain. And 
they know that David's on the other side of the mountain. And so Saul decides, listen, we're going to send them, we're going to send our men, we're going to split them up. So if we go around one side, then David's just going to go around the other side and get away. So he's on this side, we're on this side. Okay, for Saul, half of our men go one way, half the other. We'll close in on them and destroy them. And the tension is rising. Notice how it happens here in the text. Verse 25, When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side. Okay, So think thousands and thousands of men on Saul's side and 600 men on David's side. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. Middle of verse 26. For Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize him, to seize them. So here's the climax. David's had a lot of close run-ins with Saul, and he's going to have some more. But in these future run-ins that he has with Saul, David's going to have the upper hand, and he's going to spare Saul in those cases. He's not going to kill Saul. But here, Saul is as close as he will ever be to destroying David. And you have Saul's men splitting up. And it's almost like the music is, is getting more and more tense as you're watching this scene unfold. David and his men has nowhere to turn. But the difference between Saul and David is that God is on David's side. Notice what happens in verses 27 through 29. When God's people are surrounded by God's enemies with nowhere to turn, they need to remember that God is there. And in this case, God miraculously intervenes on behalf of David. So as the music gets more and more intense, you sense that something bad's about to happen. And as they inch closer and closer to David's location, the music stops and all is quiet. What's, what, what's going to happen? Well, a messenger cuts the silence with the shouting. He comes running in. And he tells Saul, listen, the Philistines are attacking your camp back home. Notice verse 27. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. Now this is fat really fascinating if you think about what's happened in this chapter. David wants to deliver Keilah from the Philistines. God says, yes. And his men say, we're too afraid because now we're going to have two sets of enemies chasing us. And so David asks again and they, they defeat the Philistines at Keilah, deliver Keilah. They don't gain any more allies. You'd think, well, maybe they have some allies on their side. Maybe these people can follow them. But instead, they've created a new and imminent threat in addition to Saul's men. He, they're, they're running from Phil, the Philistines as well. And so now both Saul and all of his men and the Philistines apparently want David's head. And yet, when it comes to the bottom line, the Philistines have a greater advantage to attacking Israel at Saul's hometown because it's weakened. Remember, all the men are gone. They've all emptied out because they're all after David. They've put the, the city back home and perhaps the women and children, at a vulnerable position, and the Philistines jump on that opportunity. See, Saul here is thinking, I have a greater advantage, not of protecting my capital, but instead of pursue, my, my better advantage is to pursue David. He's my greatest threat. We're so close. And you know what Saul could say here? When he finds out that message from the messenger, he could say, you know what? I know they're attacking back home. We'll deal with that later. But I have a bigger threat. or I have a, I, I'm just on the brink of catching David. Instead, what he recognizes is that I need to go back home. I need to give up on this pursuit of David and go back home and protect my land. 
And as a result of God's deliverance here, they call this place, in the King James Version, New International Version, Sila Hamalakash, which means the rock of escape. They, they commemorated this place as a place where they remembered that God was with them. That God, uh, while they were being surrounded by their enemies and they were closing in on them, God miraculously brought in this messenger, maybe providentially, probably a better word, but, but providentially brought in this messenger to draw Saul and his men away from there. And so in verse 29, David and his men leave there and go to En Gedi, which is located east of Ziph and Maon, closer to the Dead Sea. So, a couple... Let me just show you there. En Gedi, right there. So, let's talk about principles here and we'll be, be finished here. Number one. Find your safety in the shadow of God's wings. Find your refuge in God. What a great story here that we have in chapter 23. Sure, David's not out of the running completely. He's not in complete safety, but he's still going to have to run for several more months and years. But, but David is finding safety in the shadow of God's wings that as long as God is on his side, he's going to be fine. So what we learn from David is that, that there is no safety and help apart from God. So we need to run to God in faith. Are you being pursued by enemies? Then run to God. Believe in His promises. Obey His Word. Is God faithful? Has He been faithful to His people? Has He been faithful to you? Then, then follow Him. Find out what He has promised. Find out what He has commanded and obey what He has commanded and follow and believe in His promises. Most likely you're not in a place where you're having your life threatened physically. But you could be experiencing any number of dangers, maybe morally or spiritually. could be physical as well. But what you need more than anything is to have God on your side. God is your protector and provider. He is your strength and your refuge. He is your stronghold, and so run to Him. Number two, engage in mutual encouragement through the believers that God has placed in your life. Engage in mutual encouragement through the believers that God has placed in your life. David had that kind of encouraging friend that, that actually would apparently risk his life to get there. Right? I mean, if you think about it from Jonathan's perspective, he has to get his own intel to find out where David is and hope that David's men don't kill him. He also has to recognize that people are probably watching his back, that is, are following him, pursuing him, spying on him. That Saul's men would seize Jonathan as a traitor if they found out that he had met with David. And so Jonathan apparently risks his own life to go have a private meeting with David so that he can encourage him. And it's good to have mutual encouragement among believers. It's good to have people to whom we can go when we are in a time of distress and ask for help. It's good to have people to whom that, that we are held accountable that, that, can, that, that can be the source of encouragement for us, but we can also be the, the source of encouragement for them, where we can remind them about the promises of God. There's nothing mystical or really deep with, with trying to minister to people that are hurting. You know, we might think, well, I don't know what words to say. There's, 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 you know, I see all these, these um, really profound statements all over the Internet, and, and people really have a way with, with just driving to the point, but that's not how you have to minister. That's not how 
God has equipped you necessarily to minister. Now, if you're good at with words, great. But, but here's what you need to, to encourage them about. Encourage them that you care for them, but, but primarily that God cares for them. Spend time listening to them, being with them. You know the most encouragement that Job received from his friends? It was the first seven days when they said nothing. They were just there for him. They didn't have to say anything. That was an encouragement for Job. And so speak the truth to one another in love. Remind them about how God never abandons. Don't be like Job's friend, by the way, by, by, by blaming the circumstances on God or blaming the circumstances on Job. Instead, be with them, listen to them, remind them of God's promise that He will never leave them or forsake them. Jonathan's encouragement came at a critical time. Why? Because before Jonathan came to David, he was fleeing from Saul. Before uh, David was, was betrayed by Keilah, and then after Jonathan came to him, he was being betrayed by Ziph, people from his own, his own uh, tribe. But squeezed in the middle of these two events, being betrayed by Keilah and being betrayed by Ziph, is Jonathan here coming at a time which was most critical for, for David to remember that God is on my side. And that's why it's so critical that we see that, that when Jonathan encouraged him in verse 16, he encouraged him in God. He pointed him to God. And so when you see a need in the life of someone else, go to them and be an encouragement to them. You never know what kind of thing God may be using your encouragement to help them with. Right? They, they may be on one side of a difficult trial and just about to walk into another one. And, and one of the things that God is going to help them stay on their feet spiritually is for you to come to them and, and, and pour your life into them for some time. Listen to them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Speak words of encouragement to them. And, and sometimes God uses that to, to, for them to see that, hey, this trial that I've come through is not, uh, it, it is not something that's going to overwhelm me. It's not going to take me down because God is on my side. And this one that's coming up, I don't even know about yet. God's going to use this means, this person to come and encourage me as a means by which I'm going to, to rest in God and trust in Him even when my friend is gone. Right? We can't always have each other at our side throughout all of life, the, the people who are most encouraging to us. But God uses uh, times, and I think He times it perfectly so that we have people who come to us when we need it. And, and we ought to be that kind of person in the hand of God, that kind of tool in the hand of God to serve as the, the mouthpiece of God, the encouragement, the, the arms of God to come in and, and um, show them that He cares. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the promises from Your Word, how You have promised to us believers that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we, we don't have to fear any, any evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And even when we are all alone, we are not alone because you are there. And so, Lord, there is no life that is more filled with support than a life that is following you, that is 
focused on You, that has a relationship with You. And so, Lord, we pray that that You would send people our way in times of distress because it is so easy for us to forget some of the basic principles of the Christian life. That, that we should not fear, but we should trust You because You are on our side and You have everything under Your sovereign hand of control. But we can forget those things very easily when the, the waves of life are crashing hard around us and the storms are, are growing stronger. And we, like Peter, start to sink because we don't get our eyes fixed on You. We need someone to come and encourage us. And so, Lord, send people from this church to do that for us. And Lord, we pray for each person here that that we would be the kind of people that are seeking opportunities to encourage. That part of our goal each week is to provoke one another to, to love and to good works to challenge them to greater faithfulness, to, to help hold them up when they feel like giving up. And Lord, we pray that, that we would be the conduit of Your faith, Your grace, Your mercy that is poured out on them. Lord, we want each person here, I want them to know more fully Your sovereign control and Your, your, your loyal love. So Lord, show that to us through Your Word and through the faithfulness of believers who care for us. Lord, help us to grow in this area, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.